Well, hello, it's Pastor Carson from Calvary Tabernacle. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. We hope that it's a blessing to you, whether you're catching one of the Sunday or Wednesday messages, or maybe you're jumping on to listen to one of the Saturday snapshots. We're doing everything we can right here in the beautiful Fountain Square area of Indianapolis to try to reach and connect and disciple people towards Jesus Christ. Enjoy what you listen to, and I hope that it's a benefit to your life. First Samuel chapter 30, verse 11, the Bible says that David's men, they being David's men, found an Egyptian in the field. They brought that Egyptian to David. They gave that man bread and he did eat and they made him to drink water. They gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, to whom belongest thou and whence art thou or where are you from? And the Egyptian servant responded and said, I am a young man out of Egypt, but I have been a servant to an Amalekite. And that Amalekite master left me because three days ago I fell sick. Verse 11, David's men found this man in the field. In verse 13, an Amalekite master left him. And I want to preach for just a few minutes on this beautiful Sunday morning to this great congregation on this thought Jesus found me where the devil left me. Is anybody thankful that you serve a God that found you where the devil, he didn't discard you, but he found you where the devil, I'm, I'm not here today to preach to people that have always had it all together. I'm here today to preach to somebody that recognizes that Jesus found me when I was a sinner and anything that I am today, I owe it all to the blood of Jesus. I owe it all to the grace of Calvary. I owe it all to the finished work of Calvary. Amen. The Lord bless you. You could be seated. At least once a year, my wife will announce to the family, sometimes directly and sometimes through passive aggressive hints, that it's time for a deep cleaning of the house. She'll maybe make some hints. Do you still wear that suit that's hanging in the closet? I haven't seen you wear that tie for a while. Your shoes are starting to pile up, and I notice there's a few pairs there that you haven't worn for a while. I know what that means. It's time to go through the closet. It's time to go through the closet, gather the old suits that are no longer being worn, the shirts that have become weathered, the pants that no longer fit, the shoes that have become worn, household items that are no longer useful, appliances that aren't working properly. And all of those items we collect and corral them and place them into those large black contractor bags. We then toss them in the back of the truck and carry them to our local thrift store. These yard sales, thrift stores, secondhand stores, goodwill consignment shops, and similar points of sale are agencies that give validation to the old idiom that one man's trash is another man's treasure. Consider with me this morning the example of the tattered, moth-ravaged sweater that was purchased for only 58 cents by a woman by the name of Ricky McEvoy. She purchased that 58-cent sweater from a rummage sale in Asheville, North Carolina. She thought little of the tattered, weathered old garment until a few days later as she began to examine that relic that was 
had been purchased for a mere 58 cents, Pastor Carson. And as she looked through that old weathered sweater, she noticed on the tag a large capital V followed by scribbled the last name Lombardi. After further, further investigation, she found that this 58 cent sweater had once been worn and belonged to the Hall of Fame football coach, Vince Lombardi. Within weeks, what had been purchased for 58 cents was sold online for over $48,000. Or there is the testimony of Michael Sparks, who was browsing a thrift store in Nashville in the year 2006 when he found what he believed to be a well handwritten copy of the Declaration of Independence. Thinking that it might enhance the patriotic decor in his office, he purchased the document for $2.48. After a little bit of research, Sparks found that this was no ordinary copy, but it was one of the 200 official copies of our nation's founding document that had been commissioned in the year 1820 by John Quincy Adams. The $2.48 purchase quickly was sold for $477,650. Wait until I'm done preaching before you run to the thrift store. And finally, there is the example of Randy Giaharo, who was looking through old boxes at a thrift shop in Fresno, California in the year 2010. As he began looking through the different aisles there in the thrift store, he found a box filled with old tintype photographs. He began to make purchases. He purchased one after the other, each of them priced at $1 apiece. Returning home, he was drawn to one particular picture that was there in the box, one particular photograph. He, he was drawn to the image on the left in the picture. He began to feel there's something very familiar about that person, that image of that man leaning upon the croquet mallet. In fact, it was the iconic outlaw, Billy the Kid. And he began to research and found indeed that's who it was. And that picture has since been valued at over $5 million. $1 purchase, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Each of these stories that I have shared and many more that could be shared today drive home three very simple points. First of all, please take a closer look before you drop something at the thrift store. Secondly, why don't these things ever happen to me? But thirdly, and most importantly, they exemplify a pattern of things that somebody said this no longer has value, but somebody else came along and recognized that what you thought was no longer valuable, there's still some worth and there's still some value. What you thought was insignificant and should only be discarded, it's going to be something that brings great value. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that Jesus found me where the devil left me. When the devil looked at my life and said, there's nothing worth saving, Jesus climbed onto an old rugged tree and said, it's worth my blood. It's worth stripes on my back. It's worth nails in my hands. It's worth nails in my feet. Anybody thankful today that Jesus found you? Hey, if you don't have a testimony, you don't have anything to praise him for. But if the devil gave up on you, and if the world was finished with you, but Jesus reached down and brought you out, it ought to bring a praise out of you on a Sunday morning. 
Somebody ought to be clapping their hands right now. Somebody ought to be leaping for joy. Somebody ought to be shouting. Somebody shouted out, Jesus found me where the devil left me. Such is the occasion that is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Here David and his men are in hot pursuit of the Amalekites. These Amalekite nomads have invaded Ziklag while David and his men are off engaged in battle. They have looted the city. They burned it with fire and taken away the women and children to be captives. And now David and his men, with the permission of God who says pursue, now they are pursuing to take back everything that the devil or the enemy has stolen from them. And the Bible tells us that as they hurry to, dis to destroy their adversary and reclaim their wives and children, they find in the field an Egyptian servant. I would ask the first question as I read of this account in the scripture, what kind of master leaves his servant to die in a field? What kind of a master would leave a man in a field with no bread to eat and no water to drink and in the, the extreme temperatures of that Middle Eastern desert area? What kind of master leaves his servant in the field, abandons them with no hope of survival? What would be the purpose of abandoning your servant and leaving him to die in the field? From the evidence that is provided in the scripture, this Egyptian servant was not so sick that it should merit his abandonment. We find that even after just a few hours of David's men providing and caring for this servant, that the servant's strength returns to him. The Bible says that he is restored, he is made whole. And we find these Amalekites, it's not like they're in such a hurry that, that they've got to get rid of any loose weight or any, any baggage that is clinging to them. They're not in a hurry trying to get somewhere. That This servant is just a little bit under the weather, and yet this Amalekite taskmaster abandons his servant. From what we can read in the scripture, it's not as if the Amalekites are scarce on supplies and lacking in provision. It's not as if this weak and sickly servant is placing an added strain on already lacking resources. They've just come from Ziklag. Verse 16 of this same chapter tells us that this same Amalekite master who couldn't even spare a little bit of water and enough provision to make a sandwich to his servant that now when we find them just a few verses later this Amalekite master and all of his companions are partying they're eating and drinking and dancing because the Bible says they have a great spoil that they have taken they didn't abandon this man because they were in a hurry they didn't abandon the man because they didn't have anything to give him but you see that is the nature of the adversary that is the nature of the devil amen the nature of the devil is to use you while you've got something to offer and then discard you when you've got nothing left to give. What kind of master leaves his servant to die in the field just because he's come down with the sickness? In order to understand the morose mindset as to what sort of master would abandon his servant and leave him to die in the field, you have to understand the nature of an Amalekite. Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. There's something we find in the scripture that's in the DNA of Esau 
that has been transferred down through the bloodline. Something about the DNA of Esau, of whom the scripture tells us he despised his birthright. Or if I could say it this way, he hated his righteous inheritance. Somehow this hatred of everything that was good and godly had been so deeply ingrained in the heart of Esau that its essence is now passed down to his children and his children's children. We find in the scripture that when the children of Israel come across the Red Sea, they're beginning to adjust to wilderness living. Who is it that attacks them at their weakest moment and at their lowest point when their legs are still wobbly under their, after their new birth, if you would, coming through the Red Sea? They're just getting adjusted to wilderness living. And while their legs are still wobbly beneath them, who is it that attacks from behind? If you guessed, it would be the descendants of Esau, the Amalekites. You guessed correctly. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 and 18 God gives a little greater insight as he speaks through the pen of Moses to provide increased insight to the way of the Amalekite. In verse 17, he says, remember what the Amalekites did to you by the way when you came out of Egypt, how that he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost parts of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, that when you were faint and weary, he feared not God. You see, that is the DNA of the Amalekite. That is the DNA of the adversary that is after every individual in this building today. He doesn't attack you on Sunday morning when you're sitting in the pew and pastor is preaching. No, he waits until Monday when temptation is all around. He waits until Tuesday when your body is weary. And then the enemy, don't forget the Amalekite. Don't forget how the devil used to wear you out. Don't forget how the enemy has done everything he can to bring about your destruction. Perhaps you recall the story of Haman, the sinister advisor to King Ahasuerus who deceitfully behind the scenes crafted a plan to cause all of the righteous seed of Israel to hang upon the gallows. If you ever wonder what would lead Haman to assemble such an evil plot, it's simple. Haman was an Amalekite. The Amalekites hate anything that is righteous. They hate anything that has the DNA of righteousness abiding within them. His reason for plotting such an evil plan that was like his grandfather Agag and his patriarch Esau. He hated the inheritance of the righteous. He was opposed to anything that was good. And that's why every time I get a chance, I want to raise my hands. Every time I get a chance, I want to dance a little bit in the presence of the Lord. Because I can never forget there was an Amalekite that had gallows assembled for me. There was an adversary that had constructed my demise, but Jesus found me. I said, but Jesus found me where the devil left me. Jesus turned the situation around. I'll never understand Sunday morning golf claps. It's all right at the masters, but it don't fit in church. I'm talking about that little, you know, that little homage that, oh, thank you, Jesus. You're so kind for what you, hey, you must not have a testimony like what I do. <laughs> hey, man, you, you must not really remember what the Amalekites tried to do to you. You must not remember what Haman was out to do. I remember when the enemy had my destruction at the forefront of his mind, but Jesus reached down and brought me out. 
I'm not here today to give him a golf clap. I'm here to give him an ovation. I'm here to lift up a loud praise. I'm here to magnify the Lord. I'm here to exalt his name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. And now, here in 1 Samuel, while David and his men are fighting a battle, they're off engaged in war. It is then the, that the Amalekites attack. They rampage the city while the men are all gone. And only women and children are left to defend the city. Why? Because that is the way of the Amalekite. The Amalekite does not fight fair. They have no fear of God. They don't possess the courage to attack when the men are home. They smite the feeble. They strike the weak. And they spoil when the men are gone to war. How could you leave a servant to starve when you have plenty of provision to spare? How could you leave a servant to die when all he needs is just a little bit of rest? Why? Because it's the way of the Amalekites and it is the way of your adversary. It is the nature of sin. I rise to remind us in this building today that sin is a hard taskmaster. I rise to remind us today that sin is a wicked taskmaster. I know it is with the children of Israel and it is so often even in the church that once they got a few days removed from the the taskmaster of Egypt, that they begin longing to go back to Egypt because they forgot the nature of the taskmaster. I want to tell somebody in this building today, there's nothing in this world worth going back to. Don't you start getting nostalgia about what Jesus brought you out of. Come on, don't you start sitting around sharing stories about your crusades back before Jesus. The best thing that ever happened to you was a Pentecostal pew, was an apostolic altar. I don't miss anything about this world. There ain't nothing I want to go back to. The best thing that ever happened to me was a preacher. The best thing that ever happened to me was a man of God. Somebody give him praise. Somebody jump a little bit. Somebody shout. I don't plan on going back to where he brought me from. Sin is a callous taskmaster. As long as you are profitable to Satan's agenda, there's room for you at the table. But the moment that you're no longer appealing and you no longer have anything to offer him, He's finished with you. Where was Delilah when Samson's blind between the pillars? Oh, Delilah had no use for a blinded fool. But when Samson is strong and carrying around the gates of a city, Delilah sweetly talks. That is the nature of your adversary. That when the devil has used you for all you've got, he abandons you and leaves you in the field to die. I've heard it said that hell doesn't have any veterans in the Hall of Fame. It's all the rookies before alcoholism ruined them, before drug addiction ravaged them, before their marriage has been wrecked by infidelities and unfaithfulness. And the enemy showcases that season that the Bible speaks of in Hebrews 11 and 25 when it says that there is pleasure in sin for a season. 
But when that season is over, pleasure turns to pain and the party turns to pity. And then the adversary discards you like yesterday's news, used and abused, washed up and washed out, emptied and left for dead. Brother Carson, I, I, I read of that Egyptian servant after just a few, de- few moments of rest and just a little bit of water and a little bit of bread. He's good to go. It wouldn't have taken much from that taskmaster to revive that man. And that's what they need to find when they walk into our church. We've got the bread that you've been looking for. And we've got the water that you've been looking for. Hey, we're here to give you a place of rest. I like the way Brother Houck said it earlier. This is a safe place. It's a place where you can grow. It's a place where you can be nursed. Because even though the devil said it's over for you, oh no, Jesus said it's just getting started. Come on, Calvary, we owe it to every guest in this building right now to let them know we've got what you're looking for. You think you're about to die, but it won't take much. It'll only take a little love. It'll only take a little compassion. It'll only take a little bread and a little water, and you'll be as good as new. The best part of this service, no matter how good or bad the preaching goes today, and please don't tell me if you think it's bad, but the best part of this service is going to be at the beginning when those six beautiful new converts walked down to the front of this church and they stood here and this congregation stood behind them and clapped their hands. Every one of them, I don't know their story, but I know one thing. The devil told them it was over. The enemy told them you were done. But I want to remind them Jesus found you where the devil left you. It's not over. You found, you found Calvary. You found the church. You found a living God. I find it so telling that three days later in the same exact field, in the same condition, that three days prior, an Amalekite master had abandoned him. David fed him. David's the one that's just been plundered and they've stolen everything that David had. David probably is tight on resources and yet David feeds him. A servant in the same condition as a taskmaster abandons him, David feeds him. In the same sick condition that caused the Amalekite master to say, I've got no use for you. The righteous king breaks off the edge of a cake made of figs and he begins to nourish that man. In the same place that hell's ambassador abandoned him, the king of kings, the king of Israel, David makes a covenant with him. Listen, it's not like in those three days, this guy got a lot better. He didn't improve his lot. It's not like when David came along, he said, oh man, you're, you're, you're the best servant ever. I mean, you're the man, you're what I've been looking for. And man, you're, you're, you're the, you're the guy with the administrative giftings. That's going to make my, 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 my kingdom here in Israel complete. No, this man had less to offer than he did three days earlier. Amen. But the king wasn't waiting on him to get better. The king said, I am the maker of the covenant. I'm the one that's got what you're looking. You don't have to get better to deserve the covenant of Jesus. You don't have to get better to deserve the mercy of God. You don't have to get better to deserve the grace of God. By a show of hands in this building, how many of you deserve the mercy of God? Don't put your hands up. I'm 
services where the preacher sets you up and you raise it. No, you have the wrong answer. So I thought I'd give you a cheat sheet. Don't raise your hand. None of us in this building deserve the mercy and grace. It's not like when God found me, he found, he got himself a special deal. Amen. It's not like when he found me, he said, oh, now my kingdom is going to be so much better because I found you. No, I had nothing to offer him. I had nothing to give him. I was the same sinner that the devil said. There's nothing left in him, but Jesus found me and he said, I've got an offer for you. I've got a covenant for you. I've got blood to wash away your sin. I've got wine to wound, mend your wounds. He's still the same man the Amalekite had abandoned. He's still just an Egyptian servant. He's still struggling with his illness. In fact, on top of all the reasons that his master had left him three days prior, He's now, in addition to that, three days without bread and water, and all his strength is gone. But in the same condition that his master left him, David made a covenant with him. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement. It's a two-sided agreement. In other words, a covenant says, if you will do this, then I will do that. Amen. The reason that this is so important today, because... I find, Pastor, on any given Sunday, somebody makes their way into our church. Perhaps it's somebody that's been there week after week, but the devil is whispering in their ear and telling them that because the devil is done with them that God can't use them. That because the devil has discarded them and sin is finished with them and they're no longer profitable to this world, that there's no way that God could ever use them. That the only way that mercy could be available to them is that first they get their act together and first they learn how to live right and walk right. But that's not what David did. That David didn't say first you get better and then I've got an offer for you. David said right there where you are I've got an opportunity. Listen, you don't have to get better to deserve the mercy of God. Jesus found me right in the same spot that the devil left me. Jesus found me in the same sinful condition that the devil left me in. Here were the conditions of this covenant. The Egyptian cries out and says two things. Don't kill me. And don't ever let me go back to where I came from. And if we ever get so entitled in our walk with God that those aren't the two cries of our heart. That every time I walk into church, I say, Lord, don't kill me. That's the mercy of God. And Lord, don't look, let me go back to where I came from. That's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God. Lord, whatever you do, don't kill me. I don't deserve it. I know I'm an Egyptian. I'm an enemy of the cross. But I pray today, God, whatever you do, don't kill me. And don't let me go back to where I came from. And on this Sunday morning, I've been living for God for 30 plus years. But I still raise my hands and say, I need your mercy. I don't deserve it, but I need your mercy. Listen, I'm third, fourth generation apostolic, but it makes me no better than the least of the sinners in this room today. I still need the mercy of the Lord. It is of the Lord's mercy and that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. 
I wonder if we could just raise our hands right now and thank God for his mercy. Oh, I know we're a good looking bunch in here today. We've got suits on and beautiful dresses and we came today and we look great and we've got the perfume and cologne on. It looks like we've got it all together, but I need you to think back to where Jesus first found you. I need you to think back to where you were when he found you, when the devil had discarded you and thrown you in the waste pile. You were nothing more than a $1 relic in a box, but Jesus found you and said, I see something valuable. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to give you mercy. The thief has come to steal, to kill and destroy, but I am come that you might have life. I deserve death, but he gave me life. I deserve judgment, but he gave me mercy. I deserve to be condemned, but he gave me grace. Jesus, whatever you do, don't let me go back to what I came from. Jesus, whatever you do. The Bible speaks in one place and says that Humanity is like a dog returning to its, yeah, I wasn't going to gross everybody out, but thank you all for your help. We see it so many times in the scripture, people running back to what they used to be and that wisely, that servant that had been abandoned by a, a wicked taskmaster, he said, I've got two, two requests. Number one, I need mercy. And number two, don't let me go back to what I used to be. And that's got to be the cry of every heart in this place today. Lord, whatever you do, don't let me go back to what I used. Can I tell you that's the power of the blood of Jesus? Amen. That's the power of the blood. As long as you stay under the blood, you'll never go back to what you used to be. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win there's wonderful power that's what gets my feet to dancing is I know the blood is what saves me the blood is what keeps me the blood is what delivers me come on somebody everything's gonna be all right come on God's got a place for you in his kingdom you're not gonna go back to what you used to be That's why the enemy is doing everything he can to get the blood out of the church. If we can just rely on talent and ability, if he can get us relying upon the excellence of our presentation. Listen, you can be excellent on Sunday and sin like the devil on Monday. That ain't what's going to keep you. But on Sunday, you get under the blood. You get in that old fountain that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You get under the blood on Sunday and you won't go back on Monday. Anybody thankful for the blood? Come on, somebody. I said, is anybody thankful? It's been 30 years and I haven't gone back because of the blood of Jesus. It's not because of who my daddy is. It's because of whose blood has covered me. I'm going I'm, I'm to finish. I'm, I'm concluding. Those are all things preachers say to give you hope. I heard a preacher several years ago. This preacher has passed since he wasn't in our movement, but he stood in a conference and said, we got to stop preaching about the cross. We got to stop preaching about the blood. 
He said, people don't want to hear about the blood. He said, what we got to start doing is telling stories about success. He said, you got to tell people how they can be more successful. That's how we'll fill our churches up. You may fill up your church, but ain't nobody been delivered by success. Ain't nobody been brought free, been brought out by success. But you get somebody under the blood and drug addictions are broken. Alcoholism is broken. Depression is defeated. I didn't come here today to tell you how to get successful. I came today to tell you Jesus found you where the devil left you and you won't go back. Somebody ought to dance a little bit because there's blood. There's blood on the doorpost. There's blood on the mantle. We're not going back to Egypt because there's blood. Somebody raise your hands and cry out. Don't let me go back to what I used to be. I came to tell somebody in this building, the devil told you that you're worth nothing and you've got nothing left to offer. Jesus is here in this building today to find you in the same place that the devil left you in. David said, now it's my turn. You named your side of the covenant, no problem. I can take care of both of those. Mercy, my blood, I'll take care of them both. But now it's my turn. Because you've been laying here for three days with nothing to eat and nothing to drink, thinking you were about to draw your last breath. That taskmaster made you feel worthless like you've not nothing to offer. But David said, here's your side of the agreement. Get up and walk with me. That's what you're going to do. You're going to get up and walk with me. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to find that old devil. We're going to find that old adversary that left you in the field to die, that left you without bread and water. And you're going to come with me and we're going to destroy that old enemy. I'm going to use you in my kingdom to destroy the enemy. He didn't just give me mercy. He didn't just give me grace. He didn't just give me his blood, but he gave me a purpose. All across this building, would you stand with me right now and raise your hands? Come on, God looks at you. He looks at you through eyes of mercy. And the enemy lies to you and says, you've got no value, you've got no worth. You're just a washed up relic. You're just an old tattered sweater worth 58 cents. You're just an old tin type photograph only worth a dollar in a box. Your best years are behind you. You've got nothing to offer. I'm finished with you. I'm going to leave you in the field to die. And along comes Jesus. Along comes the king with the covenant and says, oh, all you saw was a dollar, but this is value. I see purpose. I see purpose. Come on, walk with me. Walk with me and let's go. Let's find that enemy. Walk with me and let's go find that adversary that told you that you were worthless, that lied to you and told you that the best years were behind you. And we're going to go in my kingdom. You're going to work with me and we're going to destroy the enemy. Come on, raise hands all across this room. I want you to pray for your neighbor right now because there's somebody in this building that the enemy has been lying to them and telling them because of their addiction, because of their brokenness, because of the pain and suffering in their life, because of what somebody else did to them that left them feeling valueless. 
Come on, it's not over. Come on, it's not over. My God isn't done with you. In the same place that the devil abandoned you, Jesus is in the house today to pick you up. He's in the house today with bread and with water. He's here today with provision. Somebody in this building, why don't you come to this altar right now? There's bread and there's water at this altar. Everything you need to be restored is in this house. And I ask you to come to this altar today and begin your walk with Jesus. There's purpose for you. There's purpose in the kingdom. You don't ever have to worry about Jesus leaving you in the field. Oh, no, no. He was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised so that you don't have to be bruised. He paid the price so you never have to be abandoned again. But it's got to be a covenant relationship. It's got to be you walking down to an altar and raising your hands and saying, Lord, I believe. I believe that your mercy is for me. I believe that your blood is able to cover a multitude of my sins. And I believe that there is purpose.